Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Bright Living Podcast. My guest today is both a scientist and a yogi. Isn't that exciting? Arnaud Complaville has both a scientific background with a PhD in molecular biology and a business background with an MBA from HEC Paris. Beyond science, he is a certified yoga teacher and breath coach. He is passionate about the power of breathing practices and skydiving with over 3,000 jumps. He is managing partner at Neuromindfulness Institute a consulting company specialized in developing transformational leadership programs based on neuroscience, leadership, and mindfulness. Before, Arnaud has worked as a strategy consultant for the Boston Consulting Group and held several senior executive positions in the pharmaceutical sector in strategy and business development. His personal mantra is, the mind is like a parachute. It works best when it is open. It's from Dalai Lama, and I'm not at all surprised that Arnaud has the word parachute in his uh, favorite mantra. And I'm so happy to have discovered a person who is kind, generous, so humorous, and so resourceful. I give you Arnaud Complaville. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bright Living Podcast. Welcome, 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 Arno. I'm so very excited to have you here today. How are you? How was the beginning of the year for you? Thank you, Emma. I'm super happy to be here today. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I'm actually, I'm great, you know, and uh, the, the year started with five days in a, in a yoga ashram for me. I felt a little bit low in energy, you know, towards the end of the year, but the two last years have been a bit a bit tough from the, from the family standpoint. I lost my dad, I lost my aunt. And, you know, I kind of missed uh, the sparkle in life that I used to have before. Um, and I drifted also away a little bit from my practice. Like I was not practicing every day anymore. So like I said, okay, um, it's actually Veronica who sent me to the ashram said, just go and spend five days there. And it, um, despite the fact that, you know, we didn't sleep much because you wake up at 5.30, you finish the day at 10 and so on. Um, I feel super energized from reconnecting to my, uh, to my spiritual roots and to the, to the practice. So great start of the year. How about you? That's so beautiful, Arno. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm doing great myself. And I'm very excited to have you here as the first guest of this year of uh, 2023. Um, and it's a very special episode. Because, um, well, breathing and meditation and yoga are tools that have changed my life. But to be very honest, it's very rare that you find someone who is also very scientifically um, built, let's say, and has a very scientifically driven mind. But at the same time, um, they understand energy and the yogic perspective. And uh, I'm super excited to explore today together. Um, these tools and uh, and techniques and I was wondering because I know you already from uh, neuromindfulness from being your student basically in the neuromindfulness courses and I'm uh, reading your work and being always um, in touch with what you do but I'm actually really interested in your life story because I can imagine <laughs> there have been some some things that have brought you to um, to who you are today would you like to share a bit more on that Okay, well, <laughs> I'll try to I'll try to make this short. Um, so yeah, I started actually as a as a scientist. Um, you know that science was really my first my first passion, and after a, a scientific career, a bit of research in uh, in biology, I moved to business. 
so I got um, I got several uh, senior executive roles in the in the pharma industry before founding the um, the Neuromindfulness Institute, and so that's on the professional side. Let's say on, mm. on the more spiritual side. I was quite attracted to Buddhism when I was young. Um, first, because I, I had a friend who was a Buddhist, uh, but also because of the parallels with science that I could see. And Mathieu Ricard's book actually enlightened me on that um, because he had some discussions with some philosophers, with some astrophysicists, and they they really made a parallel between the Buddhist vision of, of life, the universe, and the scientific vision of life and the universe. And I found those, those parallels fascinating. Uh, but wow. it stayed cognitive. It stayed quite cognitive at that time. You know, I was like, okay, this is this is very interesting, but like where do I start? You know, it's like it's very interesting <laughs> intellectually, but like what's what's the, what's the starting point of the practice? Do I have to go in a cave and meditate for the next twenty years, or like how do we how do we get there? So I, I didn't take the step of you know going into going into actual practice, and um, then I discovered yoga also intellectually initially through books actually, uh, and I got fascinated as well again uh, because it. To me, it was a bit more simple than I, what I read from from the Buddhist tradition, and it sort of came with a manual. Like, okay, this is these are the steps you can take to uh, actually grow, and it doesn't say, okay, you need to meditate for twenty years in a cave. You can do that ultimately if you want. But <laughs> there are steps. There are steps you can do before, right? That makes it a little bit more concrete and and accessible. So that that's really what I started resonating with, and I went to I went to some yoga ashrams to learn a bit the basics, and you know mm -hmm. I I did a few stays like this, and I, I could feel the power of of the practice, mm -hmm. and actually the real shift came from me, for me when um, my ex wife left. Um, I'm not going to say the whole story, but it was it was a tough time, obviously. And I decided to isolate myself for two weeks in a house. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't want to involve them in there. I didn't have um, a lot of friends around. So I, for two weeks, I practiced breathing exercises uh, mostly. And and I kind of had a, an accelerated grieving process. Um, I'm not going to say that you know the whole grieving process was was done in two weeks, but. It was it was really really accelerated, and I, I do attribute that to the practice that helped me a lot go through the emotional roller coaster in an accelerated way. So I, my feeling is that I kind of saved six months in that in in that process. So I was like, "Whoa, this is really working!" You know, <laughs> I, I realized this is really working, and I decided from then onwards to make it a daily practice. I always practice uh, breathing exercises uh, when I wake up um, and I could feel the benefits in my professional life as well. I negotiated a lot of deals and I realized that I was much more in control of my emotions. So of course you get the, the upper hand in negotiation when, when you are in control of your emotions. And then I explored further. I did the yoga teacher training. I did a very intense uh, retreat with 10 hours of breathing exercises per, per day for, for mm. 10 hours to see, you know, where those practices can can lead you if you if you actually explore them to the at, at an extreme point. Mm. Um, and then I I decided to build this the the, um, the course, the neuroscience of breathing, because I felt that there was something missing there um, in terms of what's the science of 
of breathing, actually. There was a lot on meditation, you know, the neuroscience of meditation, but it was quite weak in terms of what breath actually does. Now there are some, some nice books like Breath from John Nestor, which, which are also quite accurate and very interesting in, in, in the science field, but they're quite recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for, for decades, it, it was a bit like a black box. And I felt that, you know, there was a need for to bring a little bit more science to those practices. So that's <laughs> that's that's a bit like the <laughs> short summary of my life story so far. With, uh, wow, thank with you so much for doing. sharing that. And um, yeah, I absolutely love the course. And um, we are going to dive um, a bit more into the into the science a bit later. Uh, but I do have to say thank you for sharing so vulnerably your lo- your life story. And uh, oh, I feel um, relieved that we don't have to go and meditate for um, I don't know. 20 years in a cave to become enlightened um and i feel like many people might step away from such practices because they believe they're hard to do or they're um there needs to be a complete disconnect from the real life for them to do those practices in a way that that is actually transformative and uh, yeah it's so helpful to hear that um you don't have to to disrupt your whole life to include these practices and, you know, I'm really, right now, I'm really stuck on what you said before, that you started to find some parallels between science and spirituality mm-hmm. uh, while you were studying. What is something that that really stuck with you, that really impacted you at the time? Well, I remember the, the first thing that, that struck my mind was when, when I was reading those those debates between Buddhist monks and, and astrophysicists, and, and they had the same vision of matter what is matter uh mm-hmm. between the buddhism view of of matter and energy and also the your view is pretty much the same and uh quantum physics you know which which is a relatively new field of physics which says that matter is not as solid as as we think you know because it's all about the probability of presence of an electron uh so in a way it deconstructs our vision of the world a little bit the way uh, Buddhist and ancient yogis um, are, are seeing, uh, we're seeing, or are still seeing the the the, the way the world is is built. Mm. So I was really fascinating, fascinated by those links. And then on 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 the more uh, human side of things, on how we function, uh, there, there are a lot of of examples of of things that um, ancient uh, yogis. Uh, got right uh, way before science uh, proved it. Like one example is they had the intuition that, you know, alternating the breath on both nostrils uh, is actually balancing the activity of the two brain hemispheres. And, you know, we have two energies, uh, one more on the left hemisphere, which is dominant when the right nostril is dominant, one on the right hemisphere, which is dominant when the left nostril is dominant. Yogis described that thousands of years ago with um, the, the dominance of two energy channels on starting on, with both nostrils and that, that govern the way we function with the moon and the sun energy. So it's a different language, but it describes exactly the same processes. And I think my, my feeling is that they got like 80% right of what you know science currently proves. And there's, of course some stuff that science doesn't prove because we don't have the tools yet. Science is, science is just the, describes a model of the current knowledge, but then, you know, 10 years later, this model is obsolete and is replaced by a new one, right? 
And and I guess my gut feeling is that if if science was able to prove eighty percent, maybe the remaining twenty percent is also true, right? There's also some truth to it, although we can't access the demonstration through our our scientific means. So that, that that's why I got really fascinated by those by those parallels. And whenever whenever I teach breathing, breathing exercises, for example. I always go for the two approaches. You know, it, it's important to understand what's happening when we hold our breath, what's happening when we um, change the, the the nostril with which we're breathing, and so on. Um, but then, in itself, science is is interesting to to get into the practice. But it's sort of dry if you don't add a sort of um, dimension which corresponds to a connection to something bigger than us, you know, to something mm. higher. And that's that's where spirituality comes comes into play. If breathing exercises are just mechanical and you let your mind wander uh, during the breathing exercises, you won't get the same benefits as if you have a, a deep spiritual practice or at least an attentional practice like in meditation. Or if you try to connect to to the divine somehow in your practice, it, it's just gonna bring the practice to another level. So that that that's why I think that both angles are extremely important. And the spiritual part is I don't think it's here only for historical reasons. Like you know, this is why those practices were developed initially. It also brings another dimension to those practices, which will impact the the, the benefits of the practice for sure. That's so important. I feel like what you're sharing is really, really important. And what I'm getting from what you say is that even if we know the science and we start to practice just because our rational mind is telling us, okay, this is good for my body. Let me uh, just start a practice because it's good. I've read um, a scientific article. Uh, let's just start that. It's uh, still going to be sterile if it's not practiced in a way that involves the energy, that involves spirituality. And um, I don't think I've seen extremes that are that or that I consider to be healthy, like the super spiritual extreme that has no science um, mm -hmm. background or, or overview, or the super scientific extreme that has no spiritual juice. Let's say that is a bit sterile. I don't know why I feel it, just saying this world is sterile, right? It doesn't have the energy um, input to it. It doesn't have the, yeah. the the energy juice to it. So this is why I'm really excited to have this um, perspective of spirituality and uh, science coming together and not being opposites, like the history, um, or we are used to that, right? It's either scientific or spiritual. How about we can have it both? How about it can be both, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think I think both have to have to be there. I, I don't think in in the in the twenty first century we can come up with only spiritual stuff, you know, because the um, I mean there are very very good mindfulness teachers, very good yoga teachers, but I think it it really helps to be somehow grounded grounded in science, um, because people are more and more skeptical and because you know they're just bombarded with information and they they mm. they need to choose what they what they go for in terms of what practice they choose and it's it's i think it's important to reassure people by saying okay this is backed by science this is just 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 a hippie thing or something that has been developed thousands of years ago and that that is unproven right it's something that we know what it does in the brain and also, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. 
I mean, it's crazy the number of times when I heard hyperventilate to oxygenate your brain. Like, and, and that's, that involves yoga teachers, that involves trainers. Mm. I mean, it's the exact opposite when you hyperventilate, you bring your brain into hypoxia. Um, so which can have some benefits, some interest. I mean, it can be a practice that, that we want to choose for several reasons, but not for oxygenating <laughs> your brain. It's doing the exact opposite. So I, I think it's important to also be accurate in, in what we say, what we what we teach from the from the science perspective, and then take people from there and maybe open up progressively to um, a, a more spiritual dimension. Maybe starting with just attention, you know, paying attention to your breath. Uh, just that, you know, devoid of any religious connotation or anything, but moving from the mechanical aspect mm. to the full conscious and attention uh, on, on the breathing practices. Yeah, yeah, so true. So, Arnold, we have yoga, we have um, breathing, and we have meditation, right? How are these connected together? Uh, how are these combined? And you are a teacher of all three. Um, and you you've, you know, and you've seen and you've studied. Um, and can you tell us a bit, maybe let's start with yoga, because it's more, let's say, comprehensive. That, that that's a very good question actually i would say that i'm a teacher, I'm a teacher of only one which is yoga because it includes everything else True. Um, <laughs> and that's that's also a misconception that a lot of people have you know people tend to associate in the west yoga with asanas the physical practice which to be honest in india they don't really care about you know, it's just a starting point <laughs> and and it, it's not not the end goal so uh, a lot of western yoga teachers are better at teaching asanas than in india just because there's no focus in india there's little focus in india on, on asanas there's much more focus on the other aspects that's true on, on on breath on the on the control of the mind so basically what i liked about yoga when i discovered it is that it's a holistic system it means union uh and and it's uh it's the union between the body the breath the mind and all dimensions of our being mm -hmm. in order to um to bring spiritual growth so it's not to be flexible or you know manage to do a headstand <laughs> or whatever it's not about that pretzel that, pose that, that's just a tool, right? Uh, and that's one of the tools um, of an of a huge integrated system. Uh, that which which ultimate goal is uh, spiritual growth and enlightenment. It's not about it's not even about controlling your mind or controlling your emotions. It's going beyond that. And the starting point is the body. Um, and that's that that was that was said in in very ancient texts like Hatha Yoga Pradipika and and so on, um, which is one of the very very foundational texts of yoga. And they said that you should start with a practice focusing on the body because that's the most accessible. And then the second step is you include a, a pranayama practice, a breathing practice after you have established a foundation on your body practice and then only once you've done those two those two steps you introduce meditation of mm. course you can meditate from the start but it's just going to be much harder uh, it's just going to be much harder than if you respect the steps and establish first a practice focusing on the body then mm. on the breath and then and then on the mind so the, the idea is that 
after you have done those three steps, you should be able to transcend the mind and then connect with whatever you call it, the universal, the, the universal consciousness. Anyway, something that's that's bigger than yourself. And that's the ultimate goal. I'm not saying we'll all get there, at mm-hmm. least not in this lifetime. But it's I think it's important to to keep in mind that this is the ultimate goal. It's not to be more in control of our emotions or to be more flexible or to breathe better. Um, those are kind of positive side effects on on the way to this to this very long quest of 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 enlightenment through those through those practices well that's so important because i have many clients in meditation who tell me i'm having a hard time sitting still because my body is fidgety my body wants to move and then this order of um, of taking up a practice which is body breath and then mind meditation is so important and now this makes me curious from a scientific point of view what does yoga do to the body or what does a, a moving practice let's say it can be something else it can be qigong it can be i don't know dancing or just moving the body in a way that brings energy in what does that do to our body but just any movement being it sport or yoga or whatever or asana sorry um <laughs> basically that's that's very good for the brain um it cleans the brain um and uh it produces um bdnf which is um uh, a growth factor for for neurons so it decreases neuroplasticity basically all these uh physical practices increase neuroplasticity and rejuvenate the brain um mm. What what you need for brain health is actually pretty similar to what you need for cardiovascular health in terms of exercise, in terms of diet as well. So everything you do, which is good for your heart, is basically good for your brain. That's that's <laughs> kind of you know an easy way to remember what what you should do for your for your brain health. So I guess you know from a scientific point of view, that's that's the idea. And obviously, it's very hard to sit in in a meditation pose, either to do some breathing exercises for a long time, or to meditate for a long time, if your body is too stiff, you know, because at some point it's 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 gonna hurt. So there's there's also this aspect. Some yoga schools say, you know, we do all these asanas not to become more flexible, ju- just to be able to sit in meditation pose for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think this is a bit reductive, but ultimately, this is the goal. Ultimately, the goal is to 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 learn stillness and it's stillness of the body which will bring stillness of the mind eventually but stillness of the mind has to be somehow rooted in stillness of the body because if you're sitting in meditation and and you're fidgeting all the time or your knees hurting or your back is hurting because you're just not used to it or your body's not uh, flexible enough doesn't move enough it's gonna be hard. <laughs> Not saying it's impossible, but much harder. So true, so true. And it's so interesting that the stillness of the body is achieved through the movement of the body, right? And um, now, actually, I have uh, so my mind went in two directions, and maybe we can explore mm-hmm. them. And one of them is um, the vagus nerve, because this is something that I found out later about yoga that it, it improves the vagal tone. Yep. This is one, and the other one is the emotions that are stuck in the body. Uh, even when I didn't know anything about yoga, I was just a very beginner, very much in my in my beginning practice. I felt that on my yoga mat, I was releasing a lot of emotion. Like if I had any anger or sadness that was there and I wasn't connected to it, being on my yoga mat helped me 
connect to to that emotion and release it to the point that sometimes I even stopped my practice <laughs> like right in the middle and just have a good cry or something like that. And I'm curious if um, there is some scientific, I don't know, background or or study around emotions mm-hmm. being stuck in the body and yoga helping us um, release those stuck emotions. Mm-hmm. So we can maybe take and <laughs> start with the vagus nerve. Yeah, it, it's it's a good question. I'm not aware of any specific studies on on that. Uh, what what I would say is that, <clears throat> excuse me, the difference between any physical exercise and yoga are two things. First of all, there's a deep attention to the breath when you practice. Mm-hmm. Really deep attention to the breath. Either you coordinate the breath with your movement, or you stay still in a pause and and you really pay attention to your breath which we don't generally do in in regular type of exercise. And then there's also attention to your mind. And a yoga practice, you know, you could do some yoga asanas while, I don't know, watching TV, listening to a podcast, or, you know, occupying with your mind with something else. Well, sorry to say, it's not yoga. You know, it's just a workout inspired from yoga, but it's not yoga. (laughs) To me, the purpose of asanas is to develop that awareness of the breath and of the mind and the body as well, of course, uh, through the practice of asanas. And I think it's more this attitude that you can develop in your practice, um, whether your practice is asanas, breath work, or meditation, it's pretty much the same. It's this attention that that, that we develop through the practice. And in a way, it, it can even an asana practice can become a meditative practice. It's a meditation, it can become a meditation practice with some movement or with some stillness in the postures. It's basically an embodied meditation practice. That, that's the ultimate goal. You know, it's not about uh, managing to do the peacock or whatever. <laughs> it, it, it's really, at least in my in my view, the way, the way I teach it, it's really about developing this, this awareness. And I think it's through the development of this awareness that emotions can release. Because um, you can't release emotions uh, if you're not mm. aware of them. The, the first step to release them is to bring the flashlight onto these emotions and become become aware of that. And that's clearly what mindfulness does. Mindfulness in general, uh, becoming much more self-aware, self-aware of our body, aware of the others as well because it's the same brain mechanisms so we develop empathy but also aware of our own emotions um and i think the main barrier to releasing emotions is that in most cases we're just not aware of them you know they are somehow disturbing us but we we don't have necessarily this habit of labeling them uh, and 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 then letting them go. But if you don't label them, it's very hard to let them go. So I, I guess th- this might be part of of that process. And yeah, sorry, the the vagus nerve. Uh, so yeah, the vagus nerve is clearly activated by by um, yoga practices. Uh, the vagus nerve is the longest nerve in the body. So it's it's the like the same. Let's say the high the main highway of the parasympathetic system. So whenever it's activated, it calms down everything comes down to our heart rate. Um, it also prepares us for human connection. It comes down our emotions. And yoga is a great way to activate that through stretching uh, for the asanas, but mostly through deep breathing. And mm. through the deep breathing we develop um, during the asana practice. Actually, every time the diaphragm moves, 
it massages the vagus nerve and that that's what activates it um so that's 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 one way to uh, master our mind and, and our emotions through activation of this of this vagus nerve as well which is very well documented to be activated by yoga practice yeah i i feel like the vagus nerve was my recent uh was like the greatest discovery that i've had in the recent years in the past let's say five years and uh, maybe can you share a bit what happens if our vagal tone is not or if our, our vagus nerve is not activated how can mm -hmm. one tell so if one thinks about oneself and they they try to figure out if um their vagus nerve is okay or not um how how can they tell it's bad <laughs> <laughs> no the, what's happening is that when we have a low vagal tone meaning that the the, the strength of the vagus nerve is weak so it, it's it's hard to activate basically uh, very often you find symptoms like anxiety, depression. Basically, we can adapt less to whatever's happening to us. The job, the main job of the vagus nerve is to um, adapt to our environment and, and the events in life. Hmm. So it basically has two functions. One is called interoception, meaning it sends to the brain information on the state of our organs, uh, the state of our digestive organs, the heart, and so on. And then um, the, the, the brain sends back information to the organs through the vagus nerve to calm down the system. So it's sort of feedback loop uh, that's really important for self-regulation. Um, if we don't have that, then we're kind of always active and not really adapting to what's happening around us. So we can stay in the fight-flight uh, state for a prolonged time, for example, because we don't have the capacity to self-regulate that, or we mm. can stay in the depressive state for a long time as well, because we don't we miss that capacity to regulate that. Mm. When when we when the vagus nerve is is also um, not activated, not activable because the vagal tone is low, it's also very hard to connect with other people. We kind of be, you, we kind of tend to be more self-centered. Um, because one of the things the vagus nerve does when it activates is to prepare for human connection. And that's, of course, in the brain, but also like simple examples, like uh, there are modifications in the internal ear um, mm. to, to make us listen better to human voice or voice changes uh, or capacity to read facial expressions uh, changes. So we have better empathy because we can read other people's emotions. So it's it's really critical both in terms of self-regulation and, and and connection with others. And when it's when the vagal tone is low, we miss those two things basically. You know, I've read somewhere that uh, for patients with depression, uh, some some patient patients get uh, prescribed some sort of electrostimulator yep. for their vagus nerve. Um, yep. I didn't even know that that thing existed. I found it so so fascinating. How does that work? Yeah, it works. I mean, it's an artificial, it's an artificial stimulation of the vagus nerve. You know, if those people don't have, um, it's like a muscle, you know, the more you activate your vagus nerve, uh, the, the stronger it will become. Uh, and then the higher the vagal tone. So if those people are in a too depressed state and cannot activate by themselves, the, the vagus nerve through practices like breathing practices, cultivating compassion, cultivating altruistic um, joy, this kind mm. of stuff, uh, or breathing exercises, uh, 
um, then it can be useful to have a device that will artificially activate the vagus nerve for them and they will feel much better it does it does work wow wow that's that's really powerful and i'm really grateful that uh, we all have uh, such a device with us which is right our breath <laughs> our own breath and i remember a story um so i've been a practitioner of uh, of deep breathing for five almost six years i would say but still sometimes i have uh states of anxiety and uh, not depression but maybe yeah let's say anxiety or overwhelming fear mm -hmm. and this is something that i feel every human being goes through it's not like you start to practice and then all of a sudden you're always calm always enlightened and i remember i was um it was february last year 2022 and i was uh, at lunch with um my partner and uh, my cousin and her partner. It was such a nice uh, environment. We were having a really great time. And all of a sudden, um, my partner reads some news, some very turbulent news on his phone about the war in Ukraine. And my reaction, my instant reaction was I wanted to get up and run, like literally run to the bathroom or run somewhere. And I, I felt like tension building up in my body and I wanted to cry or something. And what I did was just take a deep breath, let it out. But that wasn't enough. I needed another one. So I took another deep breath, let it out. And I felt it went away, like that state went away. And I realized, okay, maybe so I know this news can be exaggerated. Maybe it's not that bad as they say. Maybe I can have a critical look at it. But that breath actually saved my day because I could have uh, be I could have been completely thrown off and just um, I don't know stop having a good time or or feel completely uh, like I cannot continue my day. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm really excited to explore with you right now. What does actually? What does a deep breath mean? Because many people come and ask me, how, what can I do and how can I breathe deeper? And what does a deep mm -hmm. breath mean, actually? So, actually, <laughs> we, have, we have a big lung capacity that we're most of the time not using. Um, usually, we exchange like half a liter of air on each, on each breath, and, and we can multiply that by 10, largely. Um, and, and the way we do that is to learn the full yogi breath. Um, mm. So it, you know, it's a podcast format. We're not going to do a yoga class now. But it's, <laughs> it's, 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 the, it, it's the, the first thing I, I start whenever I teach, um, I teach yoga, for, for example, for a week, for, for a week-long retreat. The, the, the first thing I'm going to start is, okay, let's make sure that you guys know how to breathe properly. And breathing properly in the in the yogic tradition is starting to inhale with the abdomen. Uh, it sounds obvious, babies do it, uh, animals do it perfectly, but for some reason, uh, we tend to forget. We adults, adult humans, uh, tend to forget how to, how to breathe properly. And breathing properly always starts with the abdomen. Why? Because this is diaphragmatic breathing. And you know, the lungs are a bit of a pyramid shape, so of course the basis of the the base of the lungs is much wider than the top. So if you breathe only with the upper part of your chest, mm. then there's very little air exchange because you only um, use the the upper part of your lungs. If you 
breathe with the, with the belly, you know, letting the belly come forward on each inhale. Uh, that corresponds to the diaphragm going down on the, on the inhale and making a lot of space for air. And then once the belly is out and you have filled your abdomen with air, that is actually the base of your lungs with air, uh, then you can, um, you can also expand the chest, but only then. You know, a lot of people, what they do when you, you ask them to take a deep breath, they inhale only with the chest and they suck the belly in, <laughs> which I think yeah. is the case in Pilates as well. Mm. So like, for different reasons, I see that's, that a I lot. To, to protect the back or, you know, it's for different reasons. But for a breathing practice, you really need to uh, inhale first with the abdomen and then only when the abdomen is full to inhale with the top of the, the top of the lungs uh first abdominal breathing and then chest breathing and not not the other way around so it, th that's that's really that's really key and what what this does when you when you manage to maximize the quantity of air you can get on the inhale and then also you exhale as much as you can you empty your lungs as much as possible so you take a breath as deep as you can of course you have more air exchanges uh, because there's just much more air going in the lungs. But you also stretch your lungs. And we have some receptors in the lungs that detect that stretch. And whenever they're activated, they activate the, the parasympathetic system, so the vagus nerve, actually. They activate mm. the vagus nerve, um, and they calm down the whole system. They calm down your heart rate, uh, but they also calm down your mind. They calm down your emotions, and they activate the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the of, of the brain so that's that's what deep breath does and sometimes people forget that especially when we're stressed we tend to breathe with the upper parts of the lungs uh, or when we breathe through the mouth the mouth is the the breath is also much less deep than when we breathe through the nose um, so sometimes people suffer from asthma and just learning that can solve the issue yeah, it was my case. I used to be an asthma patient, and uh, and I'm healed now with uh, with papers and with doctors' uh, stamp. Like, okay, you don't have asthma anymore. Uh, that's amazing. And um, about the parasympathetic ner nervous system, can you describe that a bit for those who maybe have never heard the term before? Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, we have two parts of our nervous system. The central nervous system is what I have in the skull here. <laughs> and then the, perif <laughs> the, the peripheral nervous system is the link between that and the whole body. Uh, so we have two branches, the sympathetic one and the parasympathetic one. The sympathetic one is, is not so nice because it's the fight or flight one. Uh, so it's kind of the counterintuitive uh, way. So sympathetic system basically activates our, um, our body and our mind um to do something you know prepare for in in extreme cases prepare to for to fight or to flight uh situation um so when we're stressed the sympathetic system is activated the heart rate increases blood pressure increases and i'm preparing to okay do i have a do i stand a chance against the bear attacking me or shall i uh, <laughs> shall i run away um <laughs> basically redirecting our energy to the muscles not to the brain but to the muscles so that we can run or fight the parasympathetic system is its flip side. So it's the one calming down. Once the threat is gone, thinking myself as a caveman now, and I saw a bear and the bear is gone. Okay, uh, I was super stressed. 
now I need to calm down. You know, the, the, the threat is gone. And that's mm. the that's the sympathetic, that's the parasympathetic system. So essentially the vagus nerve that's gonna calm down the whole system. And we're always in balance between the between the two. What's interesting is that whenever we inhale, we activate the sympathetic system. So the heart rate increases. When we exhale, we activate the parasympathetic system and the heart rate decreases. And the difference between the two is called heart rate variability. The difference between the heart rate on inhale and the heart rate on exhale. Now, in a lot of yoga practices, of yoga breathing practices, we exhale longer than we inhale. And that's exactly the reason why. If we spend more time exhaling, we're just going to spend more time activating the parasympathetic system. Mm -hmm. So we're going to calm down the system more efficiently. So two actions on the parasympathetic system. First, deep mm. breathing because of the stretch receptors in the lungs. And second, modify the ratio between inhale and exhale. So basically exhale longer than you inhale, about two times the time of your inhale. And that will further activate the parasympathetic system. Amazing. You know, I actually, when I learned that from your course, from your breathing course, I started to measure that with my smartwatch here. Uh, and I was looking at my heartbeats as I was inhaling and watching my heartbeats as I was exhaling. And there was quite a big difference, I have to say. Yeah, so it works, was, right? <laughs> it, it, it works. Yeah, it works. And what I find fascinating is that sometimes to breathe deeper, we don't need to take more air in, but to let more air out. This is something that was a game changer yep. for me. Like have a longer exhale, which is counterintuitive. Because you you want to like if you want to breathe deeper, you feel like you have to take a longer inhale. But no, actually make more space. Give or uh, take all the air out, and after you you make space, then you have capacity to take more air in. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Um, and yeah, I feel like there's a lot of uh, information that uh, I like you to share, but. What I'm really, really curious about is what are the main ways we can modify our breath to improve our health? And I'm sure there are very simple, easy to do ways for everybody, mm -hmm. for anybody to improve their life, their mind state their and their health. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people, when, when we talk about breathing exercises, some people think, okay, I'm already breathing. So what else can I do with my breath? <laughs> apart from accelerating it you know just breathing faster or slower but there's actually quite a few things you can do the first thing is from where do you breathe the nose or the mouth so in yoga it's always the nose uh, almost always the nose to, with with very very few exceptions basically yogi says that uh, nose are, noses are for breathing and mouths are for eating and uh, she wouldn't eat with your nose right <laughs> so it, it it does make sense that uh, there's a lot of scientific evidence on, on why you should breathe through the nose, like nitric oxide production and trainment of brain waves and so on. We can go into details if you want later, but uh, clearly you should breathe through the nose. And if, for example, if you're a mouth breather during the night, um, that's that's a problem. Uh, that, that can cause some severe health problems. So what a lot of people do is just, just put a, a bit of adhesive tape on the on the mouth to make sure that they keep they keep their mouth mm. closed when they when they sleep at night to re-educate breathing through the nose. It, it's really important actually for a lot of of health um, health factors. I've read that it helps with snoring, with sleep apnea. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Absolutely. And sleep apnea, you know, people can some people can can dismiss it saying, oh, it's just like snoring. It's annoying. But no, it can have like really severe health consequences, cardiovascular health mm. consequences. So it, it's it's really something not to take lightly and to to explore with uh, with the doctor if you know you're suffering from from sleep apnea. Yeah, but so many people say I have a congested nose. I cannot breathe through the nose. And mm-hmm. um, what I what I know from you and what I read is that um, the more congested your nose is, the more you need to breathe through the, through the nose because you yeah. expand your um, skeleton and you make your nose yeah. more usable. Yeah, it's basically a use it or lose it organ. If you don't breathe through the nose, if you if people who have the habit of breathing through the mouth regularly, their nose is going to be much more congested. Uh, then you, we kind of forced to need to force the the habit of breathing through the nose. Otherwise, it's going to be more and more congested, and then we'll resort more to mouth breathing, and and, and it's it's really a vicious circle. So that's you know that's really mm-hmm. the first thing, and of course, breathing exercises help a lot. Uh, with mm. with congestion, uh, washing the nose also with saline solution in the morning. Uh, I mean, I cannot wake up without doing it. <laughs> it's like brushing my teeth. Um, <laughs> but this can be a game changer for a lot for a lot of people. Just you know, washing your nose with saline solution in the morning with uh, an anti pot. You know, it's just a small device. You you bring the water from one nostril to to the other. Um, it's it's really important to make sure that the nose is not congested during the day. Yeah, that's a basic practice in India, and it's um, it's really helped me during my colds and uh, during times when I felt congestion. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know why we don't learn that at school, but uh, I think we should. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So it's uh, breathing into our belly. It's breathing through the nose. Yeah, so that's one thing. Nose versus mouth. Uh, you can have a deep breath versus a shallow breath. We talked about that. You can modify the rhythm at which you breathe. You can breathe fast or slow. You can control that. Uh, then you can modify the ratio between inhale or exhale, depending on what you want to do. If you want to wake up, uh, then maybe uh, the inhale is longer than the exhale. If you want to calm down your your stress, your emotions, then the exhale needs to be longer than the inhale. Then you can hold your breath with full lungs, with empty lungs. This is a very important practice. And you can also uh, block one nostril and breathe through the other nostril and then eventually change the nostril to do alternate nostril breathing, which is, I mean, to my to my view, the, the most important yogic uh, breathing practices because it's, it's deeply purifying and it, it's the one that um will bring the, the the most benefits eventually into regulating the the mind cleaning the the energetic body so that's the yogic view uh mm-hmm. and um and actually um helping to to control uh to control the mind on the on the more uh cognitive <laughs> cognitive side of the of the picture Mm-hmm. So exactly? those, those, those are the modifications and of course we can combine them mm-hmm. and we can hum as well and so that, those are those are the modifications that can be that can be combined into uh, several breathing practices mm-hmm. so if we are to speak about slow breathing versus fast breathing how is slow breathing impacting our our body versus fast breathing and um yeah, I have to say that um, this is kind of a loaded question because what I'm trying to get is many people think that uh, to bring more oxygen to their system, you need uh, to breathe faster, faster, faster. Yeah. And 
we know that the opposite is true. To be honest, I used to think that. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite is true. So let, let's stay on the physiology and maybe we can explore a little bit the energy part la la later on. On, on the physiology, when we, when we hold the breath, we accumulate CO2, we build up CO2 in the, um, in the bloodstream. The oxygen content of the blood stays pretty much at the same level, you know, because it's linked to hemoglobin. So it's, it's always like for healthy people, 95, 98% is not going to move much. We always have enough oxygen in the blood. So, you know, stop freaking out about having not enough oxygen, about not having enough oxygen, unless you're at 4,000 meters high or you're in a room with a lot of, a closed room with a lot of people. But in normal conditions, we have enough oxygen. So the real regulator of the breath is CO2. And when CO2 builds up in the bloodstream, uh, it creates, initially it creates a breath hunger. We want to breathe, you know, like if we hold the breath for too long, at some point we want to breathe. And that's normal. Um, and it's, it's a reflex that we can train. So the more we get used to holding our breath, the less this, we will feel this breath hunger and the, the better it will feel. Um, but what it, the other things that, that it does is three things. When we have CO2 in the bloodstream, it creates bronchodilatation. So basically, the little bronchioles in our lungs, they pop open, they open up. Uh, so more oxygen that's in the, in the air of the lungs goes from the air into the bloodstream. Okay, mm -hmm. that's the first thing. The second thing is vasodilatation. So the capillaries that irrigate our brains the small capillaries, they open up. So they bring more blood into the brain. And the third thing is what's called the Bohr effect. Uh, the Bohr effect starts with a modification of the pH of the bloodstream. Uh, so the, the pH decreases, the, the blood becomes a little bit more acidic. And when the blood is more acidic, the, um, the oxygen actually dissociates from hemoglobin. The oxygen is transported by hemoglobin, but it's kind of stuck there. You know, the, the, if the pH is high, um, it, it doesn't leave hemoglobin. So it's not available for the tissues. If the pH is low, then it leaves hemoglobin, it detaches from hemoglobin, and it goes into the organs, into the tissues, and oh. in particular, into the brain. So more oxygen in the, sorry, more blood flow in the brain, and more oxygen that leaves the blood to reach the brain. So basically, when we hold our breath, we accumulate CO2 that leads to more brain oxygenation. Wow. And, if, and if we take the opposite, if we accelerate our breath, if we hyperventilate, uh, then we have less oxygen that's available for our brain. So one minute of hyperventilation leads to a 40% drop in brain oxygenation. It's huge. That's why we feel a bit weird with, you know, some tinglings and a bit dizzy if we hyperventilate for one minute. It's not because we have too much oxygen in the brain. It's because we don't have enough. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. So it's not enough to just bring oxygen to our body, which would be fast breathing, which, okay, brings a lot of oxygen to the to the blood. But it's important to create the right conditions for the oxygen to be transported to our brain, to the organs, and this is where CO2 comes in place. I Absolutely. Feel like, I feel like this is such an amazing piece of knowledge that everyone should know because CO2 really has a bad reputation. Like we we, we think about it like a waste uh, product and yeah. that's it. 
Yeah, the reality is, is that it is the regulator of the of the breath, so it is it is quite important. Yeah. So thank you so much for uh, sharing and for clearing that up. Um, so that's about slow breathing versus uh, fast breathing, and you also mentioned um, humming. Is anything important that happens uh, in our body while we practice humming? Yeah. Well, there's another gas which is important. It's nitric oxide. Um, and nitric oxide is produced in the sinuses here. Um, and it's produced in the sinuses when we breathe through the nose. So, of course, when we breathe through the mouth, we have no nitric oxide that reaches the that reaches the, the lungs, or very little. It's produced in other places of the body, but let's let's focus on the sinuses. When we hum, we multiply that release of nitric oxide by 20-fold. Wow. So it's it's a huge increase in in the in the nitric oxide uh, release, and NO is actually uh, a very interesting gas um, because it acts as a first line of defense against pathogens in the in, in the airways. So actually, there were during the the COVID crisis, there were hospitals that were um, giving nitric oxide to 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 people uh, who couldn't breathe uh, because it it it's a very strong vasodilator. Like CO two, but stronger, uh, so it just pops open all the all the um, bronchioles and also vasodilatator. So it, it does the same as as CO two, but on top of that, uh, it also kills some some pathogens. Um, so that's that's really that's really an important, uh, very important gas, and um, breathing through the nose is one way to produce it. Humming while exhaling. Um, is is uh, is a great way to multiply that by twenty times so to to get to get more benefits. What I like to do when I feel that I have a cold is to hum on the exhale and then inhale through the nose to get back all the um, all the NO that's produced in the sinuses and then hold my breath. Uh, and, and I do several cycles like this. Uh, hoping that the the nitric oxide that's in the in the stuck in the lungs um, will do its job of you know acting as a first line of um, of defense. That's amazing. That's amazing. So for someone looking to improve, um, let's say their defense mechanisms against uh, the flu and cold and any other pathogens, breathing through the nose would be important, and then humming like um and building building a practice like that. Um, is there a way to to practice humming like silently? Can one pra practice like like a super silent hum? Let's say I don't know you're um, in public and you and you want to you remember that this helps you. Is there any way we can practice that? <laughs> I, I'm not sure because I, I understand that the, um, I understand that the the release the twenty fold uh, release of um, nitric oxide in the sinuses to humming are due to the are linked to the vibration uh, that we create while humming. So if we hum very silently, it's not really going to work, or at least maybe it might work a little bit, but definitely not as much as when we when we hum loud without any shame. Because, <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's what the vibration is about. And so it's about, you know, doing a strong mm. hum, like, mm. it's called the bumblebee breath, because it should feel like you have a bumblebee stuck in your sinuses, uh, trying to escape. That's that's exactly the feeling of this this vibration. 
that does uh, create lead to the production of nitric oxide. And I mean, on the yoga on the yoga side, it's a very uh, it's a very ancient practice uh, that's recommended to focus the mind as well and to calm to to calm down the mind for for this effect as well. I mean, this the the sound itself and the vibration it produces is um, something that you that occupies your mind and that mm. focuses your mind instead of letting it wander somewhere. Uh, so it's called Bramri in Sanskrit. Um, it's it's a good practice. I don't I don't practice every day, um, but it's more on a um, needs basis. You know, if I feel mm, my nose is a bit congested, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a bit of humming to try to decongest my nose. I'm go- then I'm gonna then I'm gonna use it. I really love this exercise. It's hard to have any thoughts while you practice uh, humming. It's hard to to keep any thoughts because your mind really gets occupied with that yeah. sound. And after the exercise, you really still feel the um, the vibration still going on in your awareness, even if you're not practicing it anymore. So, uh, yeah, many people tell me I have a hard time silencing silencing my thoughts, and mantra and humming. I know that are good tools to silence the thoughts because you replace um the sound of your own thoughts with with something else yeah 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 it's it's actually important to to develop a quality of attention during breathing practices because again if it stays purely mechanical and during your breath hold you do your shopping list oh i need to buy this and i need to buy that and i need to buy that <laughs> it's just not gonna have the same effect you know so the the all the breathing practices are a mindfulness practice. So basically, you should develop the same quality of attention during your breathing practices as you would in meditation. Mm. For me, it's just easier in 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 breathing practices because you're not just alone with your mind; you're doing something, uh, and also the 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 rhythm at which you breathe is important. Uh, so usually when you practice breathing exercises, you count or you let yourself guided by someone who counts for you. So inhale on four, hold your breath on eight, exhale on eight. So you need to keep the count and, and keeping the count keeps your mind busy. And that, that's quite important. I use a mantra to count. I don't count one, two, three. When I practice for myself, I use a mantra to occupy my mind. And this is even better because, um, for example, I, I like to to do alternate breathing with a count of four on inhale, 16 mm. seconds for the breath hold, and then eight seconds for the exhale. So like one, I know that four seconds is one mantra <laughs> and the breath hold is four <laughs> mantra and the exhale is two mantra <laughs> with, with my own personal mantra. Uh, so that, that's that's a way that, that that's a tip to, to keep my mind busy on something and occupied and fo- focused on something. Um, and it's really important that the, of course, the, the, the mental benefits, the benefits on the mind will not be the same if, if you don't have this quality of attention. And if you let your mind wander during the practice in particular, during the breath holds, because breath holds, we've seen that it's the moment when you oxygenate your brain, uh, to the, to the max. And in particular, you oxygenate the prefrontal cortex. The, the thinking part of the brain and the, the the part that drives attention. So if you, um, in a way, Yogi said that 
A breath hold is like a magnifying glass for thoughts. So whatever thoughts you cultivate during your breath hold uh, will count more, will be magnified. So if you have, they say, impure thoughts or, you know, just a shopping list, for example, instead of saying, <laughs> okay, I'm focusing on my mantra, I'm visualizing a light, a sun, you know, that's why I always... Uh, encourage students to to visualize a sun in the in the point between the eyebrows. That's to focus the mind, you know, and and not not let it wander. It's really it's really critical to develop that quality of attention during the practice. I think that's so important. And for someone being uh, in the very beginning of their practice who might still struggle with this, like their mind is um, running away, like wandering. How can uh, one? start to cultivate this awareness? How can one start to wake up during the practice and just bring their mind back? It's it's the same as in meditation. It comes with time. You know, when you, when you sit in meditation for the first times, uh, usually the mind is very agitated because the mind doesn't like to be controlled, right? And, and, and then at some point it starts to wander. And then maybe at the beginning, we realize it has wandered after one minute of mind wandering. It's like, okay, now I'm thinking of my cat. <laughs> um, and then you bring it back to the point of focus. Mm -hmm. Well, an experienced a more experienced meditator will have the same, except that he will notice it faster. Instead of one minute, it's going to take, I don't know, five seconds. Um, and then it's going to bring it back faster than, 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 it, would before, than it would for um, a beginner meditator. While doing breathing exercises is the same. You know, we have to really pay attention to our mind and maybe have some checkpoints from time to time um, on each round. Like, has my mind wandered or is it still there? Again, I find it easier with breathing exercises because you have to count. At least you should count. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, because the rhythm is important. Uh, but second, because it's a great way to keep your mind busy. Yeah, I do feel like... Um some um, breathing exercises are also a great tool for meditation or they do induce a meditative state and um, if we speak about meditation i know that and i'm i'm reading a lot about that and i've uh, experienced myself that meditation really helps have a better mood um, become more empath empathetic um, become more altruistic have better focus can you share a bit why that is from a scientific point of view from a scientific or from a yogic point of view both <laughs> <How about> both <laughs> yeah let's start with the scientific point of view um <clears throat> i i totally agree with you to, to be honest i very rarely meditate without doing a bit of breathing exercises before just because you know i save time instead of sitting for 20 minutes trying to calm down my mind i just do my practice and then even if i only do 10 minutes of meditation at the end because i just have 10 minutes remaining and i have to do something else after then at least those 10 minutes are going to be you know laser focused i know my mind is going to be in the right state and it, it's going to be a, a good meditation uh, instead of being frustrated with you know my mind jumping from one thing to to the other so um I've I've noticed that and, and the quality of my meditation really improved since I have a regular pranayama practice. Um what what struck me was when I did this very intense retreat with 10, 10 hours of breathing exercises per day for two weeks. I didn't meditate a lot during this retreat. I'm, I think like 
two times half an hour per day, like you know, like you normally do when you go to the ashram. But the quality of my meditation after this experience completely changed. Mm. And that's from the pranayama practice, from the breathing practice. So I, I think the main reason is that those practices um, do bring the brain in a state that's prone to meditation. So first of all, the prefrontal cortex we've seen is oxygenated. And meditation is a lot dependent on the strength of the prefrontal cortex. Um, and um, the other thing is brain waves. Um, we we know that you know in order to meditate, you need to calm down your mind and and bring your your brain waves from beta, which is the activate the active uh, active mind type of type of wave, to slower waves uh, towards alpha, then towards um, towards delta as well, um, and breathing practices do that. So it in a way they are a gateway to uh to meditation a stepping stone to meditation that that's that's how i i i usually present it and as i said at the beginning yogis had this intuition and were describing that um thousands of years ago um saying that you should start with the body then the breath and and, and then the mind because just because it's going to be easier mm. and and I think one of their explanations is that uh, in, in the yoga system, uh, it's all about prana. So prana is, is the life force. Uh, it, it's not really in the physical body. It's in the energetic body that mm -hmm. yogis believe is, is kind of a, a, an energetic replica of our, of our body. That's, for example, that's what acupuncture plays on. Uh, when we put needles on, on the body, it's playing not on the physical nerves, but on the, on the meridians of energy. Mm. Um, so they call it differently, but it's the same principle. It's the channels uh, of energy that are in our energetic body. And so this, this life force that, that we get, among other things, through our breath, um, flows and, and animates uh, our body, our minds, everything. Mm. And basically, there are two main manifestations of prana in our, in our body. The first one is uh, the breath. That's that's the grossest manifestation of prana. And we can actually control it. Uh, so that's the one we can act upon easily. And the, the more subtle manifestation of that energy of prana is the mind. Mm. So our thoughts are mm. also driven by prana, but more subtle, a more subtle form of prana. And it's very hard to act directly on the minds. Like to say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have this thought. I want to get rid of that thought. Uh, it's very, it's very hard to do that. That's why we go through um, the control of the, the, the more gross form of prana, which is the breath, because on this one, we can act. And actually, the whole yoga system is um, acting on this, on this notion of prana, because even asanas, the physical practice, they also aim at moving the prana in the energetic body. So what yogis, what yogis say is that it's not to have more flexible tendons or muscles, it's to um, stretch the channels of energy so that the energy can move better in the in the energetic body. So it's just like okay, I'm stretching, uh, I'm stretching those those channels. That's the first step to allow the energy to move freely, mm -hmm. and I'm controlling this energy. And whenever I do a breath hold, for example, that's a, a very important way to accumulate 
prana and to control it, to channel it in one place. If during a breath hold I focus on the point between the eyebrows, it's to channel this energy here. And then from there, once I know how to channel this energy through the control of the breath, that's what mm -hmm. it means, pranayama is control of the prana, um, then we can act uh, on, on, on the most subtle manifestation of prana, which is, which is the mind. Um, so th this, this in a way is, is the link between those, those three practices, body, breath, and mind in the, in the yoga, in the yoga space and explain why we should respect that order. Actually, a, a funny story is that in the, I was trained in the Shivananda tradition. And, uh, and if you ever went to a Shivananda class, you know that we always start with pranayama, 20 minutes of pranayama, and then we do the asanas. And I asked the senior teacher in the ashram, like, why do we do that? It makes no sense, right? We should start with the asanas and then um, and then do the, the breathing exercise, the pranayama afterwards, and then some meditation. And she said, well, you know, initially it was like this. And then the, um, the Swami, who, the, the, the monk who designed that system, he actually reversed it because people were leaving after the, after the asana practice. <laughs> they were leaving for the course. Oh, I did my physical practice, then I'm going. And he knew that it's very important for them to benefit from it. So he put it at the beginning so that they, wow. you know, they don't leave between the, the asana practice and the pranayama practice. But it makes she agreed that it makes much more sense to do it in, in that way. And that was the way it was taught initially. That's so funny. And uh, the yoga school that I that I studied um, in India, Sattva Yoga, it's the same. We start with um, breathing, uh, then yeah. asana, then some more breathing combined with asana, and then meditation at the end. And at the end, meditation comes so, so, so naturally. It's like you can't, you are in a meditative state already. You are just multiplying it or or expanding it and i remember um because they were teaching us how to teach you start always in silence because you want to become aware so don't just go on the mat and start doing okay now let's do the asana or let's do i don't know what what practice you start with silence because you want to attune you want to become aware of what's happening in your body if you're not aware you might maybe I don't know um injure yourself or something like that or you're just not going to take the same energetic uh, benefits and and body benefits right so you start with silence you build it up to a peak and then uh, mm -hmm. end with silence and the silence at the end is undescribable after you've moved your body after you've moved your breath and uh, i also love the concept of apana so it's prana which is the energy that is moving and it's using um it's how you use the energy but also apana which is what you take out of your body, uh, how you detox your body. And uh, they're both so important. And um, the exhale, for example, is apana. It's what you, what you give out, right? It's the downward moving energy, um, which is, I think, a bit underestimated um, because many times we have accumulation of toxins that using apana techniques, we can um, release from our bodies. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's <laughs> for sure, for sure, the meditative state that you can reach after um, 
after a one hour and a half practice of asana and then pranayama it's just amazing it's the only problem is that uh, you know if we try to do that every day uh, either we wake up at five o'clock or we start the day <laughs> at 11. <laughs> yeah it's so true so i feel like many people get discouraged um, they're like okay I, I will never be able to do this this is too much for me so if um for those listening if there would be one if there was one practice that one could take um to do every day or every two days let's say what would that be in your um in your recommendation (laughs) it it depends on it depends on the level of experience and patience uh and determination of the person because of course it to build a daily habit you you always have to start small if you aim for um uh a one hour a bit of asanas a bit of pranayama a bit of meditation uh to do every day it's probably not going to work initially when you have the habit, yeah, you can you can build on it. When you have a small habit of a ten minutes practice, you can build on it, and then, and then ultimately, maybe your your mind will ask you for half an hour of practice. But it's pretty much pretty much what I do every morning. Um, so I, I would I would recommend to start small by aiming for ten minutes of practice, and and I guess it depends on what what people are struggling with. So if if people are struggling to wake up in the morning because they're like, oh, my night was was not not long enough, I'm sleepy, I need three mm. coffees to wake up, then I would go for um I would go for Kaparabati, which is the breath of fire. So that's that's a slight hyperventilation practice, uh, but it's it's good to be trained with a teacher initially because you can you can get it wrong if you're if if you don't have someone who correct you or at least you know i have a three five days breathing challenge where you know i describe those those practices with a video demonstration so that's a very arousing practice you know it's going to wake you up in the morning slight hyperventilation with a breath hold it's so it's it's um an active exhale Mm -hmm. active exhale and passive inhale only through the the abdomen so it's it's a bit technical to learn, but once once you've got it right, it's an amazing practice to wake up. You basically don't need coffee anymore. Um, <laughs> so, so that's one thing. But I think most people, when they come to breathing practices, is to help them calm down their stress, their anxiety, calm down their mind, be focused. So in that case, I would I would go more for the the calming practices. And um, in terms of calming practices, well, the first thing I would do is to make sure that I know how to take a full deep breath, you know, with the starting with the abdomen and then the chest, maybe putting a hand on the abdomen, a hand on the chest and taking a few deep breaths. That's the first thing, making sure it's in the right order. And then introduce a slow breathing practice. I think a good starting point is to do what, what I call 488 which is inhale on four and it's not one two three four it's om one om two om three om four it's good to say om between the two between each uh, each number to make sure it's one second Uh, and then hold for eight seconds ultimately we can hold for 16 seconds when when it's comfortable but for most people eight is a good starting point because 16 might feel too much and if you feel like Oh, I need to breathe out, then it does the opposite effect. It's not going to relax you, it's going to stress you. Uh, so hold for eight seconds and then inhale slowly with control for eight seconds. Um, and then repeat that cycle for like 10 minutes. 
You can find some audio guidance as well. You can count yourself, uh, put a timer on 10 minutes. Uh, and then just at the end of it, just stay a few minutes uh, with eyes closed in silence to observe the effect of the mind, the effect on the mind. Mm. And even that that simple practice, I think will will have um noticeable benefits within a few days. Uh, that's a very, very easy to put in place. Um, and then, you know, if if that works, you can build up and go for more complex practices involving out in industrial breathing. That's a little bit more tricky to to learn. So uh, it's it's going to be more efficient. But you know, it's initially keep things simple. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's uh, starting with um, an inhale of four, holding the breath for eight or less if um, you start to feel uncomfortable, and then exhale for eight, but all uh, all of that through the nose. All of that through the nose, yeah. Through the nose, yeah. That's Sorry, I forgot important. to mention that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to just to clarify. Um, thank you so much. I oh, know I feel like our conversation is really important, and I would love to go on and on and on. But uh, I want to be mindful of um, just of the time and uh, of the amount of information that one can take in from um, just from a podcast. And um, for those who want to learn more from you, for those who want to to go deeper, because in Neuromindfulness Institute that you founded. With your partner Veronica, who was also a guest to this podcast, uh, you built some some quite some amazing courses. Can you speak more thank about you. your work there and uh, maybe uh, about your plans this year? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emma. Uh, yeah, I, I could keep I could keep going going on for uh, forever, I guess, on on the on this topic as you, as you, as you've noticed. So, <laughs> um, to to answer your questions, um, we have uh, two main courses that are active uh, right now. Um, one is uh, a course called the Neuroscience of Breathing, which you know goes in much more details on on what we what it, what we described uh, today. Uh, and the second course is uh, called Neuromindfulness Coach Certificate, and that's that's our signature course. is is the biggest course that we have um, that. So it's it's designed for coaches, trainers, business leaders, basically people who want to learn more about neuroscience and and how to um, leverage neuroscience in um, in personal development together with uh, mindfulness practices as a tool. So basically, neuroscience brings self awareness, and then mindfulness brings the tools to actually act on that. We, we talk about topics like. Uh, stress management, uh, emotion regulation, cognitive performance with I don't know habit formation, decision making, and so on, and then human the neuroscience of human connection. So the, those three main angles, um, and we have a part that's pre-recorded and one part which we call senior practitioner that's live um, with still online but but with live um, live workshops in in. Um, groups of around 15 people so that you know we get the social learning element with the connection um and well thanks to that we we have now a community of 450 people around the world so and i'm happy I'm to like be part of it <laughs> uber grateful about that i still don't know how this happened <laughs> <laughs> that's that's quite an achievement congratulations that was the highlight of the the last two years because I was like we wouldn't have dreamed of of that and it's just an amazing community. We have regular exchanges, lots of free learning events that are organized by members of the community for the community. Wow. So this is this is really cool. 
And for this year, um, so we're going to have a retreat uh, in July, which is the Master Practitioner Retreat. So it's for people who went through the two modules of uh, Neuromindfulness Coach Certification, the pre-recorded module, the live module. And then we go in the retreat as, uh, to really dig di deep dive on the practice, like not bringing any new neuroscience because this is all treated in the other two parts, but like really uh, practicing together for a week. Um, so really excited about that. And the two new projects that we have, one is a course on the neuroscience of learning, which um, I'm going to work on right now <laughs> with Veronica. <laughs> um, I'm hoping to launch that in uh, right February, March timeframe. And uh, also together with the course on breathing, the neuroscience of breathing, uh, we're thinking of uh, building um, a breath coach certification, neuromindfulness breath coach certification, uh, which will take the form of a retreat, uh, probably in the autumn, in the fall. That's just an idea at this point. We haven't, um, we need to secure the location, the dates, you know, <laughs> finalize the concept. But that's that's the intention for this year to have these these two new these two new projects. That's amazing, and I'm going to uh, link uh, in the description to your website where. Uh, people can get all the updates of uh, your amazing work and i'm happy to be uh one of your students uh it's quite some some amazing knowledge that you've uh, managed to put together and um also an amazing community and thank you so much arno i'm looking forward to a future episode where and maybe where we, maybe we can dive deeper in one of these um subjects and uh thank you so much for the work that you're, you're doing um i feel like it's upgrading the vibration of the world of the planet and the, and the consciousness <laughs> um and yeah just uh, keep up the good work thank you so much thank you so much shema i really like the conversation it was super fun to discuss about that it's good you put a stop because like you've seen i'm unstoppable on this topic <laughs> <laughs> me too me too <laughs> so I, I hope it wasn't too much and um and we 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 brought a little bit of interest in the in the audience on those on those topics and you know so that they can they can experiment if they haven't and and hopefully see some of the benefits that we we've both seen in in our in our lives i'm i'm sure that's the case and um both arno and i are open to uh questions so you may drop here on youtube any questions any um anything that you'd like more clarification on because we're open to reply and to uh help you on your learning journey Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Um, make sure to stay in touch, and I'll see you in the next episodes. Bye. Thank you. Bye.